This is one of those really um, unusual, cool podiums. <laughs> I've never quite seen one like this. You may never again. I am known on occasion to pound the podium, but I think I'm going to resist doing that this time. Um, so uh, good to be here to see all of you folks. As David indicated, I've just fallen in love with him and his dear family and uh, Living Church International and Christ Dominion School. I've known the Johnsons for 20 years, and we're still friends. Uh, good to see all of you KMI folks. I've, Dennis and I have known one another for, I think it's about 20 years. met him when I was... Uh, working at the, the Calcedon Foundation, and I'll lead another think tank, the Center for Cultural Leadership, but uh, appreciate so much your work, your commitment to the kingdom, you understand the nature of the kingdom, extending the reign and rule of God. Seems a great deal to me. And uh, my dear friend Jeff Schaefer is here somewhere. He didn't bring his better half, Macy, but so glad to see him. I appreciate the work of, of ADF and uh, preserving our freedoms and enhancing the uh, religious liberty in our nation. Um, I've got a series of four lectures I'm delivering, and uh, I think looking at Jeff's titles, they really are going to dovetail. We're going to be talking largely about uh, a theology of creation or implications of that theology. And you know, I thought I've got all the text for those, and I thought today as I was driving and praying, I think instead of actually going through that lecture, I thought I'd be a little more conversational and informal. So I just wrote some notes tonight. So if you don't mind a few little hem-hawing at some points as I gather my thoughts, I hope that I can speak directly to you on this, uh, this topic and that it'll be a, of great benefit. Uh, my theme is uh, this evening is uh, an interesting one. Maybe it's captured your attention. Creation lost and regained. Uh, I'd like to begin by sort of posing a rhetorical question. How is it possible that the United States has legalized, legalized same-sex marriage when such a thing, even as recently, I would suggest, as 10 to 15 years ago, would have been nearly unthinkable, in, among most of the population, at least. And that if you believe the polls, and there are a number of them, that a small majority, a majority nonetheless, but a small majority, uh, is in favor, of, in the United States, in favor of same-sex marriage. That's disputable, but let's just put it this way. There are a lot of people in this country that do support same-sex marriage. And I guess more troublesome to me that uh, the evangelical church broadly considered has not stood as it should on this issue as forthrightly and as thoughtfully, intelligently, and as boldly as it should have. So I'm asking today, sort of broad, this evening broadly, I mean, how could all of this have happened? Well, I can't in the space of a few minutes give the full answer to that, but I'm going to give one aspect of the answer, and I'll tell you right now, and the rest of this talk is sort of an elaboration on that. The conservative evangelical church has not for a long time had a robust understanding of the biblical doctrine of creation. 
Now, that's not the only problem, but I would suggest that that is a big problem. And that's what I want to discuss. The roots of this problem go very deeply into evangelicalism. I think it's fair to say that most everybody here would identify in some sense as an evangelical, right? If somebody called you up, you pastors, church members, and said, uh, is your church evangelical? You would probably say, well, yes, if I can define it, sure. It's an evangelical church. Historically, uh, that moniker actually began, some people think it began in the Reformation, but actually it began somewhat earlier in the medieval world with some Roman Catholics, believe it or not, who were known, very zealous Roman Catholics, who were known at the time as evangelicals. But actually the widespread use of that term, evangelical, to describe a whole large group of people began in the Protestant Reformation with the Lutherans, who are known as evangelicals. But today's evangelicalism tends to trace more to the first and second Great Awakenings. How many of you historically know what I'm talking about? First Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening, both in the UK and in the US. Uh, In the um, UK, we think of names like uh, Wesley and uh, Whitfield. And in the U.S., Jonathan Edwards. Then later on, the more Arminian, in the Second Great Awakening, the more Arminian revivals of Charles Finney and D.L. Moody, and then in the 20th century, of course, Billy Graham. One distinctive of this evangelicalism is the strong stress on the necessity of a personal decision for Jesus Christ. It's not enough that you're baptized into the community, uh, Baptized into the community. Am I still on? Um, I have a very loud voice, so it doesn't matter. uh, I can project. Um, uh, But making a personal decision for Jesus Christ and not simply born into a Christian family or that sort of thing, that was very important for the evangelicals. You must have a personal decision for Jesus Christ. And come to think of it, I believe that every person in this room probably owes a debt to evangelicalism. I was converted as a child in a strongly Bible-believing Baptist church. My dad has been a Baptist minister for many decades, Uh, and that, of course, was a part of the broader evangelical movement. And I would say almost everybody in this room would say, yes, I owe a debt to evangelicalism. Well, that's kind of historically, but then we think of that word evangel, evangelicalism, the root word being evangel, uh, what does it mean? Well, the evangel is just the gospel. In Greek, the euangelion, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And essentially, what is that message? I think any person in this room probably could, if I asked you, would give an answer sort of like the one that I'm giving right now, that all of us are sinners. We've broken God's law. Therefore, we stand under his threatened judgment. And it is a righteous judgment. And we deserve to stand under his judgment. And one day we'll be separated from him eternally. Eternal damnation, as hard as it is to say and think about, if we don't, what's the next step? Trust in Jesus Christ. God sent his very own son to shed his blood on the cross. He died for us and he rose again. And what's the next step? How do we appropriate 
How do we appropriate this work on the cross, this substitutionary atonement? Well, by faith, correct? We cast ourselves on Jesus Christ, and in that way, he promises eternal life, eternal salvation to those who cast themselves on him. And therefore, the mission of evangelical churches is essentially to evangelize. There it is again, evangel. We can even use the term gospelize, to gospelize people, get them into the church, trusting Jesus Christ, growing in grace, and then go out and get more people because people are dying and going to hell and so on. Now, I think almost everybody in this room, I hope everybody in this room would agree with that. I have just given you a biblical account of the gospel. It is correct. But, and here's the next step. It's not everything you need to know about what the Bible teaches concerning redemption, and certainly not everything you need to know about a biblical understanding of the world and what God is doing in the world. I'd like to suggest that one reason that evangelicalism has been so weak in this recent onslaught, specifically on the issue of same-sex marriage, but more broadly on some of these issues like uh, transhumanism and uh, surrogate motherhood and other related issues. One reason, I would say, is that there has been a defect in evangelicalism from almost, almost the very beginning. Evangelicalism, by its very nature, stresses redemption. But redemption is not the only theme of the Bible. I'd like to suggest to you that though the heart of the Bible and the main message of the Bible is redemption, that in the storyline of the Bible, the sequence of what the Bible teaches, creation has the priority. Now, if that seems odd to you, Don't run out pulling your hair and claiming I'm a heretic. Just kind of hear me out on this, okay? Because I'm really going somewhere. Uh, So the evangelical church has, because of that, marginalized creation. For instance, we have not heard historically a great deal from evangelicals on the creator-creature distinction and all the implications of that. We've not heard a great deal from evangelicals on the Imago Dei or the man being created in the image of God. Yes, they believe that. But what are some striking implications of that? Or the male-female distinction? They haven't talked a great deal about that. Or, and this is a major one, the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate that we're called to exercise godly stewardship or dominion in the earth. That is a creational norm that I'm going to be talking about tomorrow morning. Or the goodness of creation. The creation is not just good, but very good. And then, the fruitfulness of creation. God commanded creation to be fruitful everywhere. I think you would probably agree with me, if you think about it for a minute, that those, yeah, some evangelicals have talked about those themes. Those really haven't been prominent themes among evangelicals, or and I would say not very much developed. Well, that's understandable. After all, again, what does the name evangelical mean? It's the evangel. What is the evangel again? The gospel. So there's an emphasis on the gospel, which is good, but not as much of an emphasis on creation. 
So, if the faith, and think with me here, if the faith is mainly about trusting Christ for salvation, if the church is mainly about going out and getting people saved and preparing them well for this life, Uh, so that they can prepare for the next life, and also so they can go out and evangelize and get other people saved, we might follow the logic this way. Well, why would we really want to make public statements about and work hard to oppose, for example, homosexuality or same-sex marriage? I'm only bringing that up. I could bring up a number of other topics. That happens to be a hot-button issue today. That's why I keep bringing that one up. But there are a number of others. In fact, a number of evangelical churches would say and have said, well, we're actually not really going to address this issue. It's really sad to hear them say this because it would divide the church. This is a church that is built on getting people saved and evangelizing. And if we talk about same-sex marriage, if we talk against homosexuality, that will turn people off. And we want people to come to our church and hear a positive message about Jesus Christ. And if we talk about those topics, then, humanly speaking, fewer people will get saved. And that's not what we're all about. We're about getting people saved and evangelizing. Uh, In this way, I would say, and this is a severe verdict, and I've thought about it, and I have premeditated, but I would say in this sense, in this sense, Significant portions of the evangelical church have helped contribute to the present climate which is so vulnerable to issues like same-sex marriage and homosexuality and same-sex attraction and all of these other things. I didn't just pull that out of thin air. I've really given that a lot of thought, and I hope that you will give that a lot of thought too. That's why I'm delivering this talk to you on the importance of creation. So that's sort of a short introduction to creation lost, or at least seriously diminished. And I'm going to talk about creation regained. So I've talked about the negative, now let's go to the positive. How can we get back to a fully robust understanding of what the Bible teaches concerning creation, so that even though perhaps our immediate predecessors failed in this, that we, and particularly our successors, will not fail. Let's pray that we and those who come after us in the ministry, in the church, our own children and grandchildren, do have a robust, full, comprehensive view of creation. So, creation regained. I think the first thing we need to consider is that we must master, we must master the storyline of the Bible. Now, That's not hard to understand, the storyline. I mean, the Bible is not just a collection of narratives. There are many different genres in the Bible, as you leaders know. But I would say there is a basic storyline to the Bible. The problem is a lot of people read the Bible without thinking first about the storyline. I read a book years ago, it's pretty popular, written by a University of Chicago professor, Mortimer Adler. It's called, are you ready for this title, How to Read a Book. How many of you know about this book? Okay. One thing that Adler says in there is there are different levels of reading. He says always start with what he calls inspectional reading. Inspectional reading. And he says don't just pick up a book and start reading it. 
He says, look at the table of contents. Look at the chapter titles. Look at the bold print in the book. Look at some of what appear to be the leading paragraphs in the book. Because, and this is very powerful, he says you don't want to be understanding, trying to understand what the book is all about while you're reading the book. You need to know what the book is basically about before you start reading the book. And some of you know where I'm headed. A lot of people just sort of start reading the Bible before really knowing what the Bible's all about. And they'll say, well, the Bible's God's word. It is. They'll say, so I could start reading anywhere, and I would be reading the word of God. And you would. That's necessary, but it's not sufficient. You kind of need to know what the Bible's about. The Bible has a storyline, and it's pretty simple to understand, complicated in some of its implications, and it's this, and I hope that you never forget this. It is this, just three words. You can summarize the Bible storyline as creation, fall, redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. Now I'm going to go over those briefly in just a minute. But I'm going to suggest that part of the problem of conservatives and evangelicals is that they haven't really understood that that really is the storyline of the Bible. For example, let's take our Lutheran brothers and sisters. I appreciate them greatly, and Luther's work greatly. But if you read what the Lutherans say, or talk to knowledgeable Lutheran pastors, they'll say, essentially, the Bible and the Christian faith is about the division of law and gospel. That is the hermeneutic, that is the means of interpreting the Bible. It's either all law or all gospel. They say that is a hermeneutic, that is, that is a method of interpreting the Bible. The storyline of the Bible is understanding the difference between law and gospel. For some of our dispensational friends, it is the difference in dispensations, as they would say, but particularly the difference between Israel and the church, right? Israel and the church are very separate, very distinct. So when you read the Bible, you want to see, is this to Israel? And if so, we're going to put it in the Israel box. And if it's to the church, we're going to put it in the Gentile church box. That is sort of the storyline of the Bible, Israel or the church. Or many of our charismatic friends, it's really about the gifts of the Spirit. Everything really leads to this apex of the gifts of the Spirit. To our Methodist brothers and sisters, for many of them, the Bible is largely about sanctification. We want to be sanctified, more like Jesus Christ. Now you notice that a lot of these things I've said are entirely true. But properly speaking, none of them is the storyline of the Bible. You see? Some of you here know about the so-called new perspective of Paul with Sanders and Jimmy Dunn and N.T. Wright and others. For them, it's largely about the, the seed of Abraham and the fulfillment of these promise, uh, prophecies to Israel, promises to Israel. And the, in, almost the entire Bible is interpreted in that line. Well, I think all of them, though almost all of these, many of these at least, are correct. Don't understand. You don't approach the Bible using those particular things that I've said, you approach the Bible understanding that it's a story. The storyline is creation, fall, redemption. When you do that, and here's the key. This is fundamental. You'll always start at the right place, and you'll always end at the right place. You ever like read a book and start reading in the middle? And then, i got to read this real fast, and I can't wait. But you just inevitably miss something. 
you miss something very important and you're not really going to understand. And unfortunately, many people do that. The storyline of the Bible then is creation, fall, and redemption. So, I'll just quickly survey these. The Bible teaches in creation that God created the world in six days and all very good. And why did he create? We get a hint of that in John 17. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I want these disciples to have the communion that we had before the world began. God created Adam and Eve, if I may say so in a very reverent way, to sort of share the communion. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, can you imagine the wonderful pre-temporal communion they've had from eternity? They said, let's create some other creatures with whom we can have that same kind of communion, created in our image. Different from the angels, though angels are great, and other, some other beings the Bible hints about, but man specifically created in the image of God to commune with God. And then, of course, God created man, and this beautiful, beautiful world that he placed man in, and he gave man a, a mandate. Some people call it, as I do, the cultural mandate to exercise dominion in the earth for the glory of God. What does that mean? It almost means that God is looking to man, created in his image, and he's deputizing him. I mean, God himself could exercise dominion in the earth. He's already sovereign, for sure. He, he himself could come down and very specifically exercise dominion. And he said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to create man. And a big responsibility of his will be to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. So it brings glory to me. That's part of creation. And then he established creation according to, to norms and laws. And we're going to go through some of those tomorrow morning. The way that creation works. We might say it's sort of the, sort of the operating system, for those of you that know computers, uh, computers. It's the operating system of, of, of creation in the universe. Well, then moving on quickly, then of course we come to the fall. The serpent uh, inspired by Satan, or perhaps Satan uh, incarnate, comes and leads Adam and Eve to break to break the communion. And that's essentially what happened. Breaking God's law and breaking the communion. Sin always breaks things. Did you know that? It just breaks things. It breaks the communion between man and fellow man. Right after the fall, next chapter, what do we see happening? Cain, the older brother, killing his younger brother Abel. It creates a rupture between man and fellow man. It creates a rupture between man and his environment. Creation itself was cursed. Man would now have to work, and it would be very difficult for him to work. By the way, he worked before the fall. That's very important. You say, I would be really cool if I was Adam. I could just sit around all day and, like, pick fruit. Sort of chase my wife around. And just, just sort of be in bliss. No, actually, this calling to dominion would require a lot of work. But after the fall, it was very difficult and laborious. Through the sweat of one's face, one worked. And then, of course, the uh, pain in childbearing. But then there's also the rupture within man. Oh, isn't that one that we know from human history? Man is at war with himself. 
and uh, it's called, one writer put it, um, Fire in the Minds of Men. Uh, Billington, I think, is the author. Please get that book if you want to read about this historically and how revolutions are sparked by people who have this internal fire. If you've met people like that, they're just constantly churning on the inside and they just make everybody around them sort of miserable. But all of us, to a degree, have this sort of internal rupture. But worst of all of these is the rupture between man and who? Between man and God. And so the Bible says now we're not born at peace with God, but at war with God. And in fact, Jesus Christ came to restore what? The shalom, the peace through his atoning death on the cross, meeting God's justice on the cross. So that's the fall. And uh, then, of course, and thank God for this, there's redemption. And where was redemption first promised? Right there in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The protoevangelium, this promise, this glorious promise. And metaphorically, of course, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And I won't in this talk go into the details, but clearly it seems to me the Bible elsewhere indicates that's Je- that is, of course, Jesus Christ and his crushing Satan himself and the emissaries of Satan and his work on the cross. I want to spend the rest of the time, though, and it, I won't be much longer, um, talking about this redemption because this will really help us understand the nature of creation. It is this, and if there's something to write down, in fact, I think it might be in your notes there, it's this. Redemption is nothing more or less than creation regained. Redemption is nothing more or less than creation regained. One writer put it this way. It's so simple, but it's remarkable how people don't understand this. Salvation does not bring anything new. Now, we're new creatures for sure, because we're different from the previous creatures who are sinful creatures. Now, immediately somebody says, well, but Andrew, isn't it true that we're supposed to move on in sanctification and grow and grow and be closer to the Lord? Absolutely. But you see, that, listen to this, that would have been true had sin never entered the world. Well, think about this for a minute. Adam and Eve in creation were not created to live in a static universe. That's remarkable how many people don't understand that. Because think about it, when they get this cultural mandate... We know specifically one thing was to change, was what was the specific task, and I'm sure there were others, but the specific task that God gave to Adam. To multiply, but also to name the animals. To name the animals. Well, I I highly suspect that there weren't nearly as many animals then as there were today. There were certain specific kinds from which all of these come from. But still, that wasn't an easy task. Hmm. You're on four legs here. What do I want to call you? I mean, you look kind of like this creature, but are you... No, maybe you're not quite the same creature. So I'm going to call you a horse. No, he didn't call him a horse. He didn't speak English. But the equivalent of what we would call a horse. And this really introduces the difference between creation and culture. Creation is what God makes, and culture is what we make. Look even at the root word, C-U-L-T, cult, like cultivate. It's a religious word, of course. It's where we get the word cult. But when you cultivate, essentially, 
Culture is man's interaction with creation to bring it to a higher level. I mean, each of us is sitting here uh, radically a beneficiary of the work of culture. You do know that, don't you? You have this amazing thing. It's artificial illumination. It's called lights. We don't have to like have fire here. But even if we only had fire, well, how would we burn the fire? How would we create the fire? Well, that's culture. Human interaction with creation creates culture. And of course, there's godly culture and there's ungodly culture. And I'll talk more about that in the next talk. But that's essentially what redemption is. It is godly people, even after the fall, godly people working to fulfill the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate, bringing glory to God. Uh, let me use a, a couple of metaphors here. In creation, God made a cosmic mansion, a cosmic mansion for man. And he placed man in that mansion, a glorious mansion. Have you ever like walked outside just sometime and seen how remarkably beautiful the universe is? The reason we don't often do that is we take for granted these things. We also have very robust senses to experience this remarkable universe. I mean, everything from depth perception to the variety of colors, to the variety of animals, to the capacity to create things and technology, it truly is remarkable. And it's not remarkable to us because we simply take it for granted. But sit back sometime and say, I'm not going to take this for granted. It really is remarkable. So God makes this cosmic mansion for man, and then man defaces the mansion. He sprays black paint inside the mansion. He gets a big sledgehammer and knocks out a couple of the walls of the mansion. And he gets angry and he sets fire and he burns half of the mansion down. Now, that's creation. We have creation, God creating the mansion. Fall, man defacing the mansion. And then we have redemption. And notice, isn't it lovely? It's redemption and not a new creation. Listen carefully. God decided not to create a new mansion. He's repairing this one. You understand how important creation is? God did not start over. You know why God didn't start over? Because there was nothing wrong with the first one. There's something fundamental I want you to understand. It's this, and we'll discuss more when we talk about Gnosticism tomorrow. There is no defect. There is no problem in the original creation. It's not just good. What was God's final verdict about it when he looked at it? Very good. God, as it were, stepped back and said, I did a pretty good job there. In fact, I couldn't have done a better job. This is exactly what I want it to be. Another metaphor I'd like to use. Let's think for a minute about a little baby that's born very healthy, but as, a, as an infant, this little child contracts a, a disease. Maybe it's a virus. It's not necessarily life-threatening, but it's a very pesky, uh, plaguing, long-term disease. And as the child grows up, disease continues to manifest itself. And yes, the child has arms and legs and so on, but there are real problems with this child, and it's not normal. It's not normal. And then one day, a very, very gifted physician comes and says, I think I found a cure for this disease. And he gives the child the cure. 
Now, let's think about this for a minute. The original child born, that is the original creation, the healthy child. The introduction of the disease is, of course, the fall and what happened. But then, who in the metaphor is the great physician? It's God, of course, using his son, Jesus Christ. But, and this is the fundamental point I want you to understand, God didn't recreate the baby. And the development did not stop. The development did not stop just because of the introduction of the virus. I want you to think about the implications of that. This is for people who think, well, once you're saved, you just have to like all of this cultural success and and all of these things that we take for granted and all of this technology, uh, because it's been used for evil purposes, uh, we, we, we we just have to get rid of it. No, the, if the little baby has grown. Despite, God is so remarkable that in spite of sin, in spite of sin, there have been remarkable cultural successes. Man still exercises dominion, sometimes for his glory and sometimes not. And yet, I want you to think about this for a minute. And those of us who are conservatives theologically and politically really need to think hard about this. We're so pessimistic, we get up in the morning, well, things are really bad. But you know, I would say things are really good too. Did you notice that it's actually, it, it rained today. It rained today, and you know the sun did come up. We didn't see it, but the sun came up. And uh, most of you here have jobs, almost everybody, and your lifespan will probably be much longer than the lifespan of people a hundred years ago. And most of you are carrying around in your pocket or playing on right now one of the most powerful machines ever produced in the history of man. You know that little iPhone or handheld digital device? That is like an amazingly powerful machine that our predecessors, or even those 30 years ago, would have thought, that's truly wrong. Only the visionaries of the time, the technological visionaries of the time, could have foreseen this. It's truly remarkable. Of course, if you're listening to the news all the time, don't they have a vested interest talking about all the bad things going on? I mean, imagine if the leading story on on CNN or Fox was, there weren't any big fires or any big problems in the world today. Most people got up and went to work, and yeah, a few people died, but things went pretty well in the world today. (laughs) Well, change that channel. We've got to get some bad news. I need to be excited about something. See how our thinking is often skewed. Yes, I'm not downplaying the evil in the world. It's very real. The apostasy is very real. But man has not destroyed creation. And I want to promise you something on the basis of the word of God. Man can disrupt creation, but man cannot destroy creation. We live in a God-rigged universe. A God-rigged universe. And therefore he's going to win. Now, going now toward the end of this redemption phase, I haven't yet opened the scriptures. I've talked about a number of them, but I'd like you to turn with me if you do have your Bible or if you have your handheld digital device and you have a Bible program on that device. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. So we're coming toward the end of the storyline. We've got creation, fall, redemption. And toward the end of redemption... We have in the book of Revelation, admittedly, a largely symbolic statement about what the future holds. And I, in my interpretation of Revelation, a lot of what 
the past held before A.D. 70, but clearly the part we're addressing now is future to the writer and future to us. So, Revelation chapter 21, notice this really fascinating passage. I'm just going to read the first, um, let's just say the first three verses. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I would suggest to you, and I don't have time to go into this, that this doesn't mean a full-scale recreation. It means a new phase. It means a new redeemed phase. Just as you and I will be resurrected, so the heavens and the earth will be resurrected. We even use that in our language. Um, we will say, for example, oh, we're not going to see the moon in a couple of nights because it's a new moon. So does that mean that, like, for that night alone, God creates a special moon? The invisible moon? No. What does new moon mean? It means a new phase of the moon. It's starting into a new phase. That's what I would suggest this means. And then he says, notice, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, a traditional way of understanding the future is that when we die, we have sort of these, the ghost in the machine, these souls inside us that kind of fly up. And we're sort of forever with the Lord, meaning up in heaven somewhere, and that's where we are eternally. I'm going to suggest the Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible does not teach that in eternity we are up in heaven. It's that God himself comes down to earth and dwells with us. We don't go up and dwell with him. He comes down and dwells with us on a renovated heaven and earth. I want you to think about that for a minute. If God himself and his son are willing to live eternally on a very material earth, we had better start taking creation very seriously. And then, of course, we could speak, and I'll stop in just a moment, on the full scope of redemption. I won't go into Colossians 1, but I hope that you, all of you have read it. But Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, which speaks of Jesus Christ as being the mediator of creation, not just a mediator of redemption. Now, having said that, I'll draw this to a, to a close. This... Um, paradigm that I presented to you really uh, creates a, a distinction and a fact that we need to recognize, and that is there really are two kinds of Christianity and two kinds of Christians, all of them believers, but nonetheless they interpret the Bible differently and therefore act differently. Their expectations are different and therefore their churches are different. I'm going to start with what I would like to call the, the Genesis 3 Christians. Essentially, the Genesis 3 Christians begin with, you're a sinner. And that is true, of course. You're a sinner, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and he rose again for you. God loved you so much that he poured out his judgment on his own son. And he rose from the dead, proving his Messiahship. And if you will trust in his son, cast yourself entirely on him, 
by faith, then you will gain eternal life. You'll be restored to God's favor. And on earth, you'll grow in grace and be among other believers as we are among ourselves and enjoying each other's company and the Lord's company. And then when we die or at the Lord's coming, we will be up in heaven with him eternally. That is what I would call a summary of the sort of Genesis 3 Christianity in Christians. You know where I'm going, don't you? But then I would say there's another group of Christians. I would call them the Genesis 1 and 2 Christians. The Genesis 1 and 2 Christians believe that the Bible really does begin at creation. You see, the Genesis 3 Christians essentially start the storyline of the Bible. It's a fall. Now, they believe. It's not that they disbelieve in creation, but that's not really a major thing that they need to take a lot of time with, they would say. But the Genesis 1 and 2 Christians realize that we're supposed to begin where God begins, and that is at creation. And God placed man in a garden, and he created all of this glorious universe for man to enjoy, to enjoy communion with him, to fellowship with God, to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and for man to cultivate all of this earth for his glory, and to use all of the means necessary Uh, all of his ingenuity, all of his cultural work, all of his technology, all of those things, more and more to grow and grow and grow and bring all of this to God and lay it at his feet. But of course the fall came and that put a monkey wrench in this plan. But it didn't destroy the plan. The work of redemption, therefore, is designed to replace man to place man, rather, again in a situation in which he can do what Adam was called to do. To redeem him so that he is right with God, has a heart given to God, understands the word of God, understands his place in the created world, and therefore can exercise dominion for the Lord's glory. Ah, those are two very different views that I just gave you. Because you see, the Genesis 1 and 2 Christianity view recognizes the fall. It doesn't diminish the fall, but it understands that on the other side of the fall, God is actually reclaiming and redeeming creation and enhancing creation by cultural activity under God's authority of his word to bring glory to him. So I would ask us this evening in conclusion to consider whether we are or whether we should be Genesis 3 Christians And begin with the fall. Or begin, I believe, with where God begins in the Bible storyline. And that is with creation. My next three talks are going to be sort of elaborations on this in one way or another. So, thank you very much. A strict ten minute break for restroom. Right back here for Mr. Schaefer.